Hi, and welcome to Beyond Parking, a podcast brought to you by the British Parking Association. My name is Joey, and I'm here today with Julian, and we both work in the technology, innovation, and research team. Wait, today it's just me. Joey's not so well today. Nothing serious. She'll be back for the next podcast, I'm sure. But uh, she's left me with the unenviable task of flying solo on this particular podcast. And this is the first podcast of 2021. Really excited to be interviewing Sarah Sloman. She's the Zero Emission Mobility Energy and Infrastructure Advisor or Business Development Lead at Foot Anstey. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? She'll tell you what that's all about early on in the, uh, in the interview. She is an avid advocate for electric vehicles, owned one for several years herself, so she's got that perspective to bring. But also she's someone who works in that space in between local authorities and the private sector uh, and has lots of uh, lessons learned from her years working in that field to impart to all of you listeners. We also cover things like the, uh, the wonderful experience you can get if you've got an EV and you go to uh, the GridServe four courts. I think the first one's in Braintree. And she casts her mind to the future and how local authorities can address scaling up and particularly thinking about those who perhaps don't have a charge point on their driveway and so on. But here we go again, spoiling the plot. Let's go straight into the interview, shall we? So good morning, Sarah. Um, really nice of you to join us at Beyond Parking. Um, today I'm on my own. Uh, Joe's not well today, nothing serious, but uh, we shall soldier on regardless. And I'm really keen to know your job title. It's, it's an intriguing uh, job title, very timely, as, as we talk about carbon reduction, zero emission mobility business development manager. Tell me how you got that job title. How did you get there? Well, I mostly just wanted as many points as possible on the Scrabble board. So I thought I'd put as many, <laughs> as many words in as possible. No, it's an, it's an evolution throughout my career to end up with a job title like that because I've always been in sustainable development and transport. So starting out with walking and cycling and pedestrian safety, all the way through to Cycling City, local sustainable transport fund. And then this neatly led me on to meeting for Anstey at a conference. And we talked over the space of a year or so before realizing that what would be fantastic as in addition to their energy and infrastructure team is somebody non-legal who can bring that external perspective into the team and centered entirely around zero emission mobility. So that can be anything from mobility hubs through to e-bikes or trikes or what is missing between what the local authority need versus what the private sector need and how we can tie all of that together. Right. So you spend a lot of time uh, joining people together in, in conversations because the, uh, what, I, what I hear constantly is, is we need to sit around the table, people who don't normally sit around the table and um, work the way through some of the red tape that is involved. Um, so you've been uh, in the, in the EV, let me start that again. You've been in the uh, EV zero emission world for quite a time, and I imagine you've got your own electric vehicle. Um, in fact, yes. Yeah. So I was very lucky to join North Somerset Council in 2016, and they were already ahead of the curve with their fleet manager, Carl mm -hmm. Nicholson, and they were successful in securing some of the OLEV, was OLEV, now OZEV, funding for Go Ultra Low Cities. So we were awarded £7 million as a region, which saw the fleet yard, which was full of diesels and petrols, being transformed into gradual EV. So I got to try quite a number of vehicles before I bought my own EV and I 
settled on the MGZS EV just last year. Um, and I was able to benefit from a few grants and early bird opportunities. So ah. the vehicle I bought was not only affordable, it was the right range because we were in lockdown. Um, but right. I have actually just sold the MG in favor of a longer range leased I'm waiting for the Kia e-Nero 4 Plus, which will come probably April time. So just in time for things to spark up in the summer. Wonderful. And, and has your experience changed over time? I mean, it's perhaps it's a short time, but um, in terms of are you seeing charge points popping up all over the place or is yeah, it a I mean, very gradual right build? When we had the local sustainable transport fund, we were already seeing businesses coming forward, inquiring about the opportunity for electric vehicle charging at their workplace. So Bristol actually was quite pioneering and started installing way ahead of the Go Ultra Low funding, probably around 2012. So in that time, since the first time I drove an electric vehicle right through to now, that's a, that's a significant time space. But I'd say the last five years have been consistently using electric vehicles and that awful monkey bar leap of faith from one charger to the next when you've got a medium to low range vehicle can be quite testing and we've entered this strange situation where at the time if you're an early adopter you knew where your favorite chargers were and you went to them however now you will be almost certainly queuing for them if you have a sweet spot somewhere rurally that you know is on a sort of back country route that you prefer to take of course if you stick to the motorways of course if you stick to the main roads then you will be well serviced and with the likes of grid popping up and others there are going to be others waiting in the wings not to, not least of all landowners getting wise to the fact that they can transform their patch of land to cater for the ev market i don't think we're going to be short of charges but are we going to be short of quality charges that are easy to use and seamless to use that's the next big nut to crack some of our listeners might not have heard of the exciting pioneering work done by GridServe, um, which is, is really shaping how perhaps we look at um, the experience of EV charging. Could you tell us a little bit about that? We'll, we'll probably have them on the podcast eventually, but um, yeah, just for those who, who are not familiar with the, with the GridServe model. Absolutely. So if there was a handbook on how to deliver electric vehicle charging, then you would just go and see what GridServe are doing. They've catered for all range of charging speeds and sizes of charger and sizes of battery and sizes of car they've made the experience more like a forecourt so when you pull up you're welcomed by beautiful architecture there is somewhere to post a letter there's somewhere to buy your food um, upstairs you've got an opportunity to rent an office space whilst your car is charging or use the interactive screens for leasing a vehicle alternative to the one you arrived in so they welcome all drivers there it's really not just for ev drivers once you're there, you can experience by talking to other people or seeing with your own eyes how you can integrate solar and battery storage into the energy mix provided for the electric vehicles. So they've really thought of everything and they've got interactive screens which are describing to the end user how this process is happening. And the, 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 the sheer, this is where architecture is so important. The experience that you get when you charge there is a far cry from even some of the best alternative other places to charge where you, if you're lucky, will find perhaps one of the brilliant shell chargers which are pretty reliable, but they will be on their own, there'll be one and it will be in the corner of the Shell car park and there won't be a shelter for you. You will have to walk across the forecourt and queue up your, what is invariably a cost of coffee from a machine. And that is not 
a nice experience. That's not good for dwell time. But what GridServe have done is they want to welcome you in for a full charge. And of course, they've got anything, I think it's seven kilowatts up to 350 kilowatts. So if your vehicle is capable of receiving that amount of charge, you can be in and out within 15, 20 minutes or stay for the usual hour. But in that time, you make use of that time. And that's the secret, just like with public transport realizing that you're doing something decent with that time that you've made a choice to do makes the whole experience enjoyable and you feel in control of your time again rather than looking at your watch waiting for every single kilowatt to go in the battery because you're desperate to move off because it's freezing cold and so they've put the user at the heart of everything they've done and I, I believe they've got a lot in the pipeline for the next five years wow I have to go. I think it's Braintree, isn't it? The first. You got it. That's the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And more planned in the future. And as you say, other companies will be uh, entering into the fray of of offering offering a similar experience. Yeah, I think the GridServe way is the only way and others will do their own way as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There'll be copies and there'll be replicas and they weren't the first. I mean, the solar array shelter has been done well by others, including Fastned. And of course, we, I haven't been to the one in Milton Keynes, but I understand that there is, of course, the, ultra rapid charging hub there with BP. So there's mm-hmm, lots mm-hmm. of comparative, but mm-hmm. none has done it so holistically. This, sure. This yeah. That sounds wonderful for those who are, um, who are coming off motorways and there's a big center that gives you a full experience um, and charges you up. A lot of our local authority uh, members are looking at the issue of, of uh, residents who don't have charge points or drives and they're working out how they can offer um, EV charging to help scale things up in their locality. What's your advice when, you, when you're faced with that sort of more smaller distance charging need of, of people who don't conveniently have their own charging at home? So it depends entirely where you live. We know that only sort of 35 to 40% of the entire UK housing stock would be able to accommodate a charger on the driveway. At the same time, we are seeing new houses being built with them included. So there's obviously many, many options, and we've seen millions of pounds announced yet again as a kickstart from central government, which is fantastic. Local authorities are all being urged to take advantage of that funding. On-street parking will never go away. The cars are getting bigger. The streets are staying as narrow as they always were. Um, You can never guarantee a space unless you have a residence parking scheme. And then, of course, the number of spaces goes down significantly and has conditions attached to them. So you've got to get that right. You've got to make sure that you've got the correct street, the correct parking allocation, the correct control, the correct signage, the right power availability, and make sure it's not an elite race to make sure that the one who shouts the loudest or has the most money available to afford the space and the permit. That's where we have to think carefully. So a good combination for the UK is definitely going to be on street where on street works, destination charging where destination charging works, and as we've just described, motorway charging needs to improve. So wherever you are, you can have an option. I think a lot of people who are considering EV now naturally are trying to swap like for like. So they want to understand how on earth you could park outside your house and charge your car. I lived on a little terrace street in Bristol and it was a lovely one-way street, but I don't think I got parked outside my house in the full seven years, probably more than a handful of times. So being realistic about your situation, and realizing that sometimes you may have to park away for the night and get a full charge. But as long as you've bought or were able to lease a vehicle that had a big battery, meaning if you had 200 miles, most people wouldn't drive that in a week. It would be fine to park away from the house. The battery isn't going to be empty when you get there. And if it is on a lease, you send it back if it's faulty. So sometimes this is like a perception versus reality situation where you need to think carefully about 
what is the vehicle? How far can the vehicle go? Realistically, how often will you charge it? Speak to your employer as well. If there's any form of car park at work, employers are starting to turn this on their head and think, well, let's not make the spaces reserved for the exec and the partners. Let's think more carefully about whether a couple, one or two spaces could be designated for bookable, pre-bookable um, EV, EV charging. But the more quality public charging infrastructure goes in and the more places for long stay charging becomes an option then I think people will worry a lot less about whether they can charge outside their house every night there's a huge um, moral debate about that because if you can charge at home you can benefit from agile tariffs you can benefit from your own solar arrays and making that more affordable every night um, is something that a lot of people will automatically be excluded from. So ensuring that the public charging prices are competitive and open and that people are clear about what they're paying for and offering incentives and perks as well. It's amazing what people will do for a free coffee. <laughs> That's a lot that you've just covered in, 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 that, uh, in that response to my one question. But I just want to go back a little bit and, and, um, and think about... Uh, car park specifically moving away from on-street uh, charging i came across a project in oxford recently their uh, park and charge project where they've identified that um, there is this problem with people who don't have charge points at home and they are utilizing underutilized parking space offering charging overnight which seemed like a really sensible way forward have you seen that uh, popping up around the country is, is or is that uh, are they trailblazing no, no, of course, Oxford is always trailblazing. Yes, if you, if yeah. you want to think about innovation, that's where you look. But um, the brilliant team there behind the Oxford Superhub and others, the, the, the rest of the country is following suit or has already experimented with this. So we know that for dwell time, you need, you need a couple of hours somewhere. So something like a leisure centre is a perfect place to have uh, electric vehicle parking because even if it's just a child swimming lesson or a gym visit you are there longer than you think you can replenish at least 50 percent of the battery in that time even with a 200 mile range vehicle um, that's just with a standard seven kilowatt in install and so the beauty of that and as the years have moved on nearly every um, charger has an app now so you are able to dwell for the time that you wish to dwell for and then keep a monitoring through your palm held device on your car so you can decide when it's time to go. And I think that flexibility is going to be key. So some of the ones we've seen have been really super low charges and you need to leave the vehicle there overnight. And I don't necessarily know if I would do that. You know, I'm going to be leasing, what, 40, 40,000 pound vehicle. I'm not gonna suddenly want to leave that in a strange car park. Over time, you'll build trust with that car park, I'm sure. You've chosen to live there. Hopefully it's somewhere that you think is a, is a safe place. But car parks have a reputation for being cold, dark, dangerous it's not a fair reputation necessarily but this is something that people do think about so we need to be careful when we say oh don't worry if you can't charge at your house or you can't charge on your street go and put it in a car park because people might not wish to do that or they may have circumstances which means that they can't and then you're accidentally excluding someone from an alternative fuel market so this is why the mix is so important off street isolated car parks fantastic if you're there all day if you're there for eight hours at work brilliant opportunity to get a trickle charge for a really low cost and then that takes all your pain away so the future could lie or parts of the uh, future could lie with car parks but i i take your point about safety and uh, plug alert we do have a scheme at the bpa park mark or the safer parking scheme where um operators can sign up their car park and we have a, a manager that checks it for lighting and crime record over the last year so that is one 
perhaps badge that you can have on your uh, signage to to give some assurity to to people parking there. But yeah, we'll certainly get your point about wanting to leave your Tesla in a in a car park overnight. There are other models, but <laughs> Tesla being the most expensive, of course. So you have already uh, bust some myths in this uh, discussion. Um, you know, it, uh, it it feels like range anxiety is is lesser these days there are so many different ways that you can charge the smart charging there's the grid serve model and there are on-street charge points popping up and battery um, power is, is lasting longer battery storage rather and yet um, there are still many that would say the target of 2030 for all new uh, petrol diesel vehicles on the road is unrealistic um, to, sorry to stop all petrol and, and diesel cars and there are many that would point to obstacles in the way what what are your thoughts on that do you think it's realistic that we can have uh, a ban on all new petrol diesel cars by then even in the last five years that target has shifted it you, you know it was a long way away and then there was a sort of rumor that it was going to be 2040 and then it became 2032 and now it's 2030 and the reason for that shift is the confidence in the market so it's a two-way street if, if consumers are saying that this is what they want to do and electric vehicles have captured people's imagination if we look at sort of market trend and behavior change people want this this is something people are talking about there are other fuels in the mix we cannot ignore hydrogen it has its place and i think if we can get to a situation that i've long dreamed of in my career that people don't default to the car particularly for single occupancy vehicle use as in you're doing a two-mile journey do you really need to use the vehicle we can move towards a shared model there's already a lot of conversations around how as an asset if it's parked on the street then perhaps an ev car club that is included in the rent of your apartment block would be far better suited to you and then car park is king again so we need that space where, where businesses have thought about selling off car parks or in fact not making car parks available at all you know high prices ticket entry only maybe we need to think about how best to use that land and create a car park environment that can enable more people to have access to electric vehicles this would mean that people wouldn't need to own their own vehicle and this would mean that manufacturers wouldn't need to produce so many vehicles which would mean we're more likely to hit our target by 2030 because not forgetting it's just the manufacturer just needs to stop the manufacturing by 2030 there's still going to be some petrol and diesel around for many years to come i am sure and in a mad max style futuristic thought process i'm <laughs> convinced that there will still be some vehicles for decades and decades to come just like there still are now from the 50s and 60s so we won't see the end, end, end of petrol and diesel. There will still be some around. But what this has done, what this hard target has done, is focused people's minds. And clean air zones have focused people's minds to think more carefully about where they've chosen to live or where they would like to live, what that would mean for them if they had to travel around. And then COVID came. So we've learned that we don't even need to travel anymore. We can have meetings and conversations quite successfully through the medium of a PC or a phone. So the sheer number of miles I think people are going to drive is going to go down. I have this concern that people are going to go straight back into the vehicles post-COVID when work kicks off again, perhaps next year, because they're too afraid to use the public transport systems that they were used to using. But I actually see this being met with the rise of micromobility, seeing people really embracing the e-scooter, legal or not, obviously a rental scheme is, but private ownership still isn't. Um, but the sales figures over Christmas would suggest otherwise. And then, of course, we've got accessibility and other e-mobility options like 
the trikes where you can put your whole family in and um, we can copy, we can copy other countries and see how well they've done this. And that's not to say they still don't have congestion, they still have traffic and they still want to own a vehicle, they aspire to own a vehicle. But I would just like to see those vehicles being left at home a lot more and that 2030 target is possible if we have a combination of decent public transport that people aren't afraid to use, decent micromobility options which are legalised and safe, plus flexible car ownership, meaning you can have a car for six months of the year if that's when you most want one, but then give it back on a subscription service. So the, the vehicle manufacturing target has centred people's thoughts around how to make this clean, green recovery a bit faster, and I'm all for that. I can hear that. Very, uh, yeah, you're very passionate about that. And, and but I believe you are one of uh, the recognised thought leaders in, in the world of sustainable travel. Greenfleet's number 34 influencer, is it? Is that oh, the correct thank title? You. Uh, the Greenfleet team do such a good job every single yeah. year of galvanising the troops. So we all, we all swap ideas all the time. All of our WhatsApp groups are on fire most days of how we can push this harder and make, make the product where it needs to be, satisfy consumer demand, meet policy and legislation square on and make sure we're completely compliant, particularly in an infrastructural realm. And something for ANSI do very well is guide people through that process. So Chris Pritchett, who's the head of energy and future mobility, he's who I work for the most um, in the team of the BD. So we've got the energy and infrastructure team as a whole. So we serve end to end process here. So from the first conception of an idea through to the growth of a business, right through to funding that business and overseeing the infrastructure going into the ground. That's what a law firm can do. And I never knew that. Mm -hmm. I didn't realise what went on behind the scenes. So I was 64 on the list when I joined for ANSTI, and I think I'm at 32 now. Oh, you're going up the charts. So with that collaborative approach and really not trying to push anyone down and yeah. trying to actually join together has seen a huge acceleration mm -hmm. in the success mm -hmm. of the UK's EV charging market. And there's absolutely nothing stopping us being synonymous with clean tech and growth. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you, you've talked about how things have developed and, and how uh, Oxford and Bristol have led the way. The uh, perennial uh, thing I hear from our local authority members is, but, um, you know, how can we afford all this expensive infrastructure when we're on, uh, you know, a very short cycle in terms of the political cycle of local government um, making these long term decisions? Now, you and I know there are different ways of, of, of structuring funding and and scaling things up in a way that is sustainable can you perhaps uh, offer some of your experience as to how your cash trapped local authority can actually um, get into this market in, in a way that that it isn't going to bankrupt them in in one year for example or two years <laughs> i know it's it's definite concern every local authority has its core business as usual function we know this the schools the hospitals the roads this all needs to carry on and happen on top of their day jobs they're then given these innovation projects which require a new team to be born almost in overnight in a sort of half a year to a year process the funding comes in rounds as you know so the political change often happens as an overlap to that it's not always in perfect sync and perfect timing so i've been in situations where one person has then left the position of power and the new person comes in and wants you to tear up everything that you've achieved because it's not aligned to what they believe now the good thing is if you have got uh government funding, then you also have to answer almost directly to them through a program and project management structure. So you can never fully stop what you were doing if you were given the funding through local um, government systems. What's frustrating about it is, as you rightly say, they're often short term and infrastructure 
when you've only got a four-year funding cycle, that is short-term. Like you can get kit in the ground pretty quickly, but because of the funding requirements, you're going to need to monitor it, you're going to report on it, you're going to need to change the internal team, you're going to need to train the internal team to understand what this new technology might be. So before when local authorities had business as usual at the front of their minds, and I'm talking 20 years ago, and just for reference, my whole family, local authority has been something that we've grown up with. So my father was a civil engineer, my mother was a mechanical engineer, we, we know how this stuff works. It takes time, infrastructure can't be rushed, good install requires huge collaboration, huge planning, huge contingency, and often contingency isn't awarded as part of the grant funding and you sometimes have to go back to ask for more, which of course delays projects even further. An option, an alternative option, is private sector funding. So if the local authority doesn't have the time, inclination, personnel, appetite to apply and wait for the central government funding, you can seek a private funder as a partner. It's a lot more complicated, of course, but it can be done. So it's the same process. It's still a procurement exercise to establish who in the marketplace is best suited to your long term aims and every local authority will have its long-term aims well documented. So it's about finding, a really good example would be Swindon Borough Council partner with Connected Curb, which was privately funded, I believe, part, part and part, so half and half. Um, so I'm sure they'll comment and tell us exactly how that happened, but I really liked that approach because it meant that they could work with the housing developer to install from the ground up straight away exactly what was needed and it's, it, it should be an award-winning scheme when it's done. That's an on-street charging scheme. So there's examples all around the country of how you can benefit from private funding and then what the, the, what the law firm needs to do and what you need to do to find a decent law firm who will listen to you is to work out what's best for you next with concession models. So do you want to be a landlord and receive revenue for the equipment that goes there but you have nothing to do with it, you don't own it, you don't touch it, you don't manage it, it's just there? Or would you actually like to have it as your asset that you can utilise and benefit from and potentially have a slightly higher revenue share um, which will wash its own face and pay for itself because it's it's a good way of thinking about how to future-proof your county for your people and make sure that your needs are met because one piece of infrastructure that works somewhere else may not work for you in your region. So not being hoodwinked into something big and glamorous and shiny that you thought would be great and actually having your local authority in your mind would be my advice always keep your people at the heart of your decision making process and don't do it alone always collaborate find a good consultant find a good law firm and work with your in-house in-house teams as a, as, a, as a big team all together just like Plymouth City Council are doing with their mobility hubs just like West, West Midlands Combined Authority have done with their with their thoughts around mobility hubs you can't do it alone treat it like a business mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I, I hear that the, the importance of, of this joined up thinking and, and involving the community and knowing what they need is so key. And uh, you've kind of answered my next question. I was, I was curious about the role of a legal company in the mix here. Um, I presume that some local authorities would attempt to do all of the legal aspects themselves. Um, what are the pros and cons there? I mean, obviously, you're going to have to try not to be biased as someone who is in an independent legal firm. But But what 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 are the different scenarios that, that you see working so every local authority will have its own in-house procurement and its own in-house legal team of course and where that falls down is is in innovation because there's only probably one to three to five people having to work on that plus the business as usual stuff as i described before so it's just untenable you you can't do that alone and 
what it is is a competitive process so of course there'll be a, a framework or a tender opportunity and anybody can apply for those and you will be scored just like any external provider will be scored so what experience have you got what projects can you cite where you've had to deal with a difficult issue and most law firms will have a sort of bid team in place to help pull those together but where you're really successful is if you can engage with the individual lawyers who have put blood sweat and tears into helping businesses to solve problems and I think that's going to be the key in future partnerships is thinking carefully about it's people work with people so if you if you've met someone or found somebody who you are inspired by a difficult problem that they solved or they are local to you localism is a huge um, scoring element in these tenders processing so you need to prove that you get it that you've listened that you understand you can't just ring up from America and say yeah I totally understand that South Devon town let me help because you won't you just won't understand it and you need to be there you need to be there to pick up the phone when something's gone horribly wrong with a contractor that hasn't done what they said they were going to do which has had a huge knock-on effect and it's not all rosy in the legal world it's some of it can be quite difficult quite sticky highly confidential and I never realized how much of the glue a law a law firm has to be to these huge infrastructural projects so yeah i mean everything from ip intellectual property and data and are you compliant with your data you're collecting people's data without knowing it sometimes so you can't really just rock up to somewhere you do need to go through a competitive process to find a partner that's right for you I could imagine we could do a whole podcast on when things have gone wrong and com the comedy of errors that you may have experienced in your career so far. Yeah, I'm not, uh, not great for fun. <laughs> <laughs> Join the club. Well, we've covered so much. Um, how about the, what's on the horizon for uh, the world of Easebees? What, what do you see as the next big game changer for um, local authorities or the driver? Maybe we'll take the local authorities first of all. Well, local authorities are more than ever seeing demand from their residents. So before, I think people weren't that interested. And I do have a great example. I remember joining the Greater Bristol area for the Cycling City funding that they're awarded. And my job was a tough one. We had a great team of people and our job was to engage with the public. So we would ask popular opinion. We'd ask, where would you like cycle routes to go hypothetically if any were to be created? And um, we, I used to take phone calls from irate people saying, who's wasting all this money? What's the point in all this spending? I demand it stops. It's a complete waste of time. And within two years, those phone calls turned into who put that cycle parking there? Why can't we have more? Why is it full? Why are we not spending more on this? And that was just music to my ears to see that change. And this is what's happening with electric vehicles. So the public are starting to demand this. They want to be involved in the potential cost savings that can be made with zero emission. But more than that, people actually care. Having clean air zones, the climate emergency, everything that Greta has done, love or loathe her, has made people focus on what they need and want. And they need and want a healthy, happy life. And a healthy, happy life comes from clean air and having safe streets to play on, to move around on, to cycle on, walk on. And lockdown has shown us to re-engage with our local areas more than ever. So I am really hoping that local authorities now feel empowered to take back those streets, to stop people from driving that final mile that they really probably don't need to, exceptions to be made, of course, and free up that space, free up that space for walking, cycling, essential vehicles, that includes people who need to drive, also fleet delivery, and this seamless transition needs, guess what, a car park. <laughs> 
because people have got to travel from somewhere and they need to stop somewhere. So whether that's a car park at the train station or a car park on the outskirts on a brownfield piece of land that can be utilised, be it temporarily for 20 years for a car park, that element of transition needs to become a behavioural change step that people are willing to make. So they're happy to drive 20 miles and leave the vehicle because they know they're going to get a charge, they know the car park's going to be safe, and when they step out of that car, they're met with an array of options. Do they want to e-bike it? Do they want to scoot it? Would they like to get into that autonomous vehicle? Uh, there's going to be a biogas bus along in any second. Oh look, there's the electric tram. These are all your options. You don't even need to think about it. You just get on, swipe your smartphone, pay the £1, £52, £3, whatever's required, and off you go. This is an infrastructural dream. I can see this happening with really forward-thinking zones, and combined authorities do seem to have that ability to have an overview and a big punch they can make things happen for a wider geographic region so the future is seriously bright and the air is hopefully a lot cleaner i think you're right i think uh, i'm certainly experiencing that where i live uh, just just especially the first lockdown and uh, it was just amazing wasn't it and, and not being able to hear so much traffic and, and the cleaner air so the future is clean and bright hopefully we're, we're, it, 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 all the things are moving in the right direction. So, Sarah, what can car park operators, private or local authority, um, do at the moment to make their car parks more enticing for the EV driver? Um, what, what tech out there, what innovation is there that can really um, get people thinking, ah, this is a place I can charge my car and it's perfect for my needs? What do you suggest? Well, I suggest they take that thinking time away. <laughs> if you've got to have loads of thought processes, you're not going to do it. But if you simply turn up to a car park that has really clear signage, EV charging this way, standard vehicle parking over here. And then when you get there, there's a QR code that you simply scan with your smartphone and it takes you to a website to download. And that, that's pretty basic. That's pretty standard. That happens everywhere. I think people are used to this process now. But the charm is in, would you like to connect your vehicle for three hours? And then you'll, you'll know because the app will say, oh, look, you're driving the ZSMG. You'll need to connect this car for two hours minimum. Would you like to proceed? Yes. And then you know as a driver exactly how long you're going to be there for. You know that you'll have to be back in time to maneuver that vehicle. But even more than that, during that two hours, if you can receive push notifications geographically as you move around, say, a shopping centre or a new place that you're visiting that says, we're partnered with this coffee shop. Here, have 10% off lunch. You're here for two hours anyway. Then we can start to see this technology encouraging people to dwell within our centres again. And we need that so desperately post-COVID. We need to be supporting local shops and restaurants. And we know from a study that was done in Bristol um, from, sorry, the work we were doing in Bristol was a study done in, it was a Dutch cycling study that showed centers benefited more from people on foot and using bikes per head spend because you are more likely to cut through past the shop. You're more likely to have your eye stolen to the left or right and go and visit something you may have not have even bought. You're also more likely to be more relaxed and not constantly looking at your watch because you know you've got to get back to your vehicle. So you might go and pop along and buy another bite to eat or a present for someone and also you're not limited in terms of money in your head so you're not thinking 
oh god i've already spent 12 quid on parking and charging i, I better not spend any more today because I've, I've maximized my spend so incentivizing people to spend more through dwelling more through flexible parking apps is a really good way to go i know there's some really great ones to watch appy way are doing a lot of work in this space thinking about behavior change i think just park have thought about how to rent out your your driveway we've got co charger considering the same option and the one i think would be really good is the ones we're used to so ringo and railway station car parks if that can incorporate booking of a space and using sensors and telematics to identify your vehicle and then you you know that you're safely parked and that you'll get a push notification when your car is fully charged and you can elect to return to vehicle or continue to park there this is important because then the next driver who comes along will know the status of that vehicle and understand when that driver is pledged to be back and so some chargers are already equipped with this where you get a penalty charge if you stay longer than one hour um, but that's not conducive to uh, supporting the high street so a sort of lower drip charge in long stay car parks with flexible apps and sort of enjoyable palm held experience is going to be quite beneficial post-covid i think in helping people to not only embrace clean technology and clean air but also changing their habits and their lifestyles and making use of the local facilities would be really nice to see a lot of what you've just described is around behavior change and um we we have uh, i'll make a shout out to two new bpa members in the form of parking perks and better points who operate app-based platforms that incentivize either active travel or shopping in your locality and parking can fit into that equation you can get free parking for example if you shop in your local uh, town city and, and that's a, it's a great great way forward you've mentioned earlier also about um car ownership and shared mobility and and um, ev car clubs for housing estates brilliant ideas we are still as a nation uh, a nation that is um really perhaps married to car ownership and that feels like quite a sea change to get people to think about not having to own a car are we alone in the uk um can you cite examples outside the uk where this this has changed and people aren't so obsessed with owning their own car <laughs> i think unfortunately humans are always going to be obsessed with owning everything um, <laughs> and I, I think the secret will be in inclusivity so making you feel like you do own that car because remembering that vehicle's going say it's a car club the position of that car club isn't going to change so it is going to be the vehicle that you associate with because it's the nearest one to your house say within half a mile um, and making you again as the owner of that car for the one day two days one hour that you use it for is really nice and tapping into behavior change principles and better points do actually do this so well um, i really rate uh, lots of electric vehicle subscription services where you can have it just for a month so you own the vehicle for a month and so you still get that buzz of this is my car look at my car cool you know you put pictures of it your kids love it if you've got kids your partner loves it if you've got a partner but then you give it back and that's a fantastic feeling because you're you're devoid then of all the additional pressure and stress that comes with ownership of anything uh, we're seeing a huge rise in people renting renting everything we rent our phones each month well most of us do some crazy people pay the thousands of pounds to own the handset <laughs> and the rest of us just pay the measly monthly fee we're used to it i think we're more used to it than we think we are people want to live in swanky apartments in redeveloped parts of cities rather than aspiring to the big country pile house that's going to be an endless chore of maintenance and cars are the same 
owning a vehicle outright and finding that cash capital to buy it and then having all the maintenance on top of it is, is a drag. And that's why most people turn over their vehicles in a few years because they don't want that headache. So the, the mind, we're, we're quite a consumerist society already. We quite like the idea of having them giving away, having them giving away. Have, this process isn't any different with transport and appetite for e-mobility. So I'm not worried. I do think that as long as you make the experience seamless and fun and cutting edge and easy and not rip people off and not take their data and make things morally right, then you're on to a win. How can that be bad? Sharing and making communities feel connected to one another is going to be the secret to our humanist success. And it has been so far. So I really want to see transport playing an even bigger part in that. Sarah, I think that's a great place to uh, end this wonderful conversation we've had to get today on, uh, on Beyond Parking. We look forward to uh, seeing you again soon at a live or a virtual event. Oh, uh, how wonderful would a live event be? And that's where we met. We didn't tell the audience. We were on stage moderating the importance of fleet vehicles having access to London streets. I don't know if you remember that back in November. I remember it, but not in as much detail as you've just uh, <laughs> take yeah. it as a compliment <laughs> absolutely and uh yeah that was with our friends at uh, solar media and i think we will be probably seeing each other again at their ev everything events coming up in april that's my hope yes which reminds me i've probably got something to do but in the meantime thank you so much for welcoming me onto your podcast series and any questions anybody can find me on linkedin at any time brilliant